please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives food. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Mark chapter 1, verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're continuing in the time of this season, which is called Epiphany. That season's name means a revelation. An epiphany is a moment of clarity. An epiphany is very similar to another E word, Eureka. I've found it. There's a revelation or an unveiling which happens quite suddenly. If you were here the last two weeks, we've been spending our time in the Gospel of Mark, seeing that Mark records details about the revelation of Jesus Christ in his Gospel, highlighting the, with the word immediately. And this word immediately is really very fitting for this season in which we're in, that Jesus was doing things to reveal the kingdom of God. 
Last week, we looked at how Jesus delivered a man who manifested demons in the synagogue. He cried out with a loud voice against the authority that Jesus was teaching. And so we saw that Jesus' word brings his kingdom. That as Jesus was teaching that day, expounding and exegeting the scriptures, his word brought a confrontation with the power of darkness, which was dormant in that man. It's uh, by implication or by inference, we might be able to understand that that person was likely very comfortable in that synagogue. In those days, even more than today, people went to one church and often for their whole lives because the synagogue system was based on which town you belong to. And to be a member in the synagogue meant you had to commit financial resources and time. And so it's very likely the case that that demonic oppression in that individual, that unclean spirit, was comfortable being in that synagogue. There was no confrontation between the scribes and the power of evil. And as soon as Jesus begins to utter his word, there's a great clash of kingdoms. There's a great fight which breaks out. And again, with a word, he delivers that person. And so this is also fitting with our goal as a church this year, which is which I've been describing, I believe the Lord would have us to experience a personal and corporate renewal in the enjoyment of God's word and God's spirit. A personal and corporate renewal in our enjoyment, not our discipline, not our striving in, not our attempt to create something that doesn't already exist in the grace of God, rather our enjoyment in God's word and God's spirit. So, That being said, what we see continue to happen is another revelation of the character and nature of Jesus Christ, in which in this passage, we see, as Mark writes his gospel, we see Jesus defeat another series of enemies. And although last week we looked at Jesus' victory over evil spirits, here we see that all come back into play. Here we're going to see him defeat Again, evil spirits and sickness. And then my main and chief goal is to demonstrate how Jesus Christ defeats the temptation to rest on his laurels and to accept the praises of men. This is what I believe Jesus is doing. Mark is, Mark is demonstrating a series of progressively expanding victories. That as Jesus came as the incarnate one and the, the writers of the Gospels, Luke, Matthew, etc., they reveal through the songs sung by Mary and by uh, Simon and by uh, Elizabeth and by Zechariah, all of these statements in which these faithful saints were already telling of the victory that was brought by God just in the incarnation. And so Jesus' victory over the powers of darkness does not just take place at the cross. It begins in his incarnation and birth, his revelation at the temple, and then later his revelation at the temple when he was a young man, uh, teaching the, the scribes and the Pharisees, debating with them. And then here, as the gospels begin to unfold, these little, small, progressive victories in which Christ is demonstrating that he is greater than evil spirits. He is greater than sickness itself. And here, we're going to see that Jesus reveals himself as greater than even subtle temptations, which as we read, we might not even be aware of, but I think Mark is making quite plain through the way that he records Jesus' response to Simon. 
So I want to look at three things today. First, the healing of Simon's mother-in-law that Jesus does being, uh, being a picture of the gospel. I want to look then at Jesus's, again, his triumph over evil spirits and how that actually is a great reminder of something that's happened earlier in the scriptures. Perhaps some of you have already kind of, when you were hearing the reading, you might have already remembered a time where something very similar to what happens in Capernaum happened earlier in the scriptures. Don't worry if you don't know where we're going. It'll be quite clear once we get there. And then finally, I want to look at how Jesus defeats temptations to pride and to accept the praises of men as the main point of this passage. The reason I've encoded or titled this sermon as Transformed by Jesus to Serve Others is because what Jesus does to Simon's mother-in-law and, the, and what happens after her healing, as well as his demonstration of what it takes to be someone who can minister to those around him, demonstrate for us the necessity of God's transformation in our own lives. What Jesus does here in the town of Capernaum would overwhelm any of us. <clears throat> And the temptations which he defeats are spectacular, beautiful, and they're clear. And they show us that Jesus is an example of loving the Father and serving others only from a place of love for the Father, not the approval of men. And so if we would be transformed to serve others, which is our goal as disciples of Christ, we must imitate Jesus in his manner of ministry. Not just what he did. We can't just emphasize deliverance, although if, if you've been at this church, we emphasize that. We have to emulate his manner, not just his mode. We have to, we have to emulate or imitate Jesus Christ's principle, which he demonstrated in his power. That is what I believe Jesus is doing in this place in Mark's gospel, is he's showing his disciples what is the main thing. Don't rejoice that you have power over evil spirits, that the demons submit, but rejoice that your names are recorded in the book of life. That's what I believe Jesus is doing in this passage as well. So um, we already talked about what we had read last week, that after Jesus delivers a man with an evil spirit in the synagogue, he leaves the synagogue, and this is already a little bit of a foreshadowing of what's going to come later. He retires to Simon and Andrew's house. And uh, in those days, it was much more common to have larger houses in which family members, distant, not distant relatives, but immediate relatives would live in one area. And it also was the case that elderly parents were provided for by their children. It is not like in our culture where we send away the old people somewhere where we don't have to see them. Uh, Here in this culture, it was very typical that a parent or a relative would live with their adult children when they were approaching sickness or the end of life. It was the responsibility of the children to do that. But instead of seeking his own glory in the synagogue, he leaves the synagogue quite intentionally. Now, I want, I want you to imagine this. You're in church. You hear this brand new rabbi show up, and immediately people start reacting to his teachings. They're shocked and awed by the authority that Jesus had as he exegeted the word of God, as he explained the Bible. And then all of a sudden, a man with an evil spirit interrupts the peace of the synagogue 
and explodes in rage against the authority of the kingdom that Jesus was preaching. And then Jesus casts out that evil spirit. Mark says, immediately his fame spread everywhere. What would be the temptation? Stay in the synagogue. Start to curry a movement. Set up a Facebook page and get your branding done. This would be the temptation that Jesus might face here. What does he do? He immediately goes to spend time with his followers. He, he immediately goes to be with his disciples. The reason Jesus appointed the disciples was that they might be with him and that he might send them out. And so we see this premacy or supremacy of communion with God's people before currying the favor of what often comes around a, a successful ministry. Verse 29, immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. He brought guests with him. He went to Simon and Andrew's house. And, and in those days, just as today, it was very common to have a meal after synagogue to rest with your family. And so he brings his family with him to go visit Simon's house. As soon as they get there, um, there's a, a confrontation again. There's an immediately, one of these times where Mark is highlighting the urgency of the situation, and immediately, uh, in the King James it says, they immediately told him, here in the ESV, they've put it as well, and immediately they told him about her. And so they're demonstrating an urgency. They've just seen this Jesus who we have been suspecting is the Christ, who we've heard about is the Christ. He just demonstrated power over evil spirits. Might he not also have the ability to heal my mother-in-law? While Mark omits the severity of the fever, Luke records it in a parallel passage saying it's a great fever. It's a high fever. And it's important to remember, for those of you who've ever had little children or you've ever cared for the elderly, fevers are deadly. Fevers are not what you get for a few days when you have a little bit of nausea and a high temperature and then three days later you're fine in the pinnacle of health and in the peak of life. That is not what is going on here. His mother-in-law was in a very great need. That is why Mark says, immediately they told him about her. They didn't wait or delay. They tell him immediately. And again, this is Mark's indication that something dramatic is about to take place. Having just seen his power over evil spirits, they come to him because he's demonstrating authority over things which afflict man. So verse 31 says, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up I, I imagine that that is, he came to her bed, he took her by the hand, and he sat her up. He lifted her up so that she could be sat up in a place where he could fellowship with her and spend time with her. And it says, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Jesus takes compassion on this woman, and she's in a great distress and danger of death. This is no small thing. As Luke tells us, it's a great fever. It's a high fever. It's a fever with which, if, unless something is done, she will die. That is what I believe is going on in this place. He takes her hand, he lifts her up, and she is healed. And then, interestingly, what comes next is quite important for us if we're to read clearly in this place. Having been delivered from death, she is greatly moved by her love for her Redeemer. 
and she begins to serve them, not out of her duty as a mother-in-law, but out of her great love and compassion for what has just taken place. And I believe, actually, Mark is recording in this single verse a microcosm of the gospel, as it were. That if, as Paul records in Ephesians 2, he says, you were delivered from death and you were given new life. And then in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, he says, we were created as new creations in Christ Jesus for this purpose, for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's, there's an end or a purpose to gospel transformation. It is not simply to receive blessings from God. It is to receive blessings, graces from the Lord, and then use them as the avenue to serve others. I believe that's what's going on in this passage. We likewise are trapped in sin and death, unable to do anything about our spiritual condition, just as this lady was. She was in the throes of a high fever. If you've never been in a high fever, it is sometimes hard to imagine. I remember a time I was on a trip with my high school. I was in Paris, and I made the bad decision to eat food at a non-very touristy location. I went to a Euro shop that was, we had this theory that we would find real authentic food one street in and one street over. That was our phrase that we came up with. We would not want to, we didn't want to go, being young and bold uh, travelers, we didn't want to go where all the other touristy people were going. We were young, and so we had that rebel without a cause. And, and so I went with a friend who was able to speak a little bit of French. We got a euro at this place. We had lunch. And we both got food poisoning that knocked us out for an entire 24 hours. That fever I had was so bad that I actually was in the throes of what I might say is a delirium where I was very sure that I might die. It was terrifying. I was totally unable to do anything at all. I, I was in another country, I didn't have medicine, I didn't have water, I didn't have a cell phone that could be used. I was just waiting there for somebody to do something or for God to lift this sickness off of me. That's the spiritual condition of sinners before Christ. They are in the throes of death, unable to do anything for themselves, and unless there is a remedy, they cannot be saved. And yet, at the same time, as soon as Jesus heals this woman, he transforms her. She begins to immediately bear the fruit of gospel graces, which is compassion for Christ, love for Christ, and a desire to serve his followers. It says, she began to serve them. I want you to understand that this is Mark's intention. He's trying to highlight the power of the gospel. He's not saying Jesus was frustrated that no one was taking care of his needs, so he did a miracle. It's, it's the complete opposite, and we see that through the entire passage. Indeed, it's the complete opposite. Christ has compassion on this woman who cannot do anything for herself. She's transformed and then bears the fruit. Having narrowly escaped eternal death, we likewise should be disciples of Christ who are laying down our lives, being fueled by the grace of God, and taking that grace and allowing it to become spiritual resource in our hearts, in our emotions, in our skills, and in, in the way we carry ourselves in our lives to be resources for others. We respond to 
the gospel with fulfilling the first and second commandment. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it. The reason he says the second is like it is because they come from the same source. Jesus, uh, when he healed the woman who, um, when he forgave the woman of grievous sins, we see in Luke chapter 7, this woman who comes to the Lord and is weeping at his feet and washing his feet with her hair. And Jesus responds to the bitterness of the Pharisees around him and says, the reason this woman is doing this, the reason she loved much is because she was forgiven much. That we do not need a greater forgiveness, we need a greater knowledge of what we've been given in Christ. That if we are to truly be transformed from our apathy, from our immaturities, from the things which prevent us from being useful to God and to our neighbor, we must have a greater knowledge of what we've already been given in Jesus Christ. That you were a rebel on your way toward hell, hell-bent, is where that phrase comes from, running headlong after things which will destroy your soul, all the the while embracing them, having twisted loves, twisted affections for evil things, and God plucked you out. As If you were here a few weeks ago, John Gray did a, a talk from Zechariah 3 in which he described the way that God silences the voice of the accuser is he says, this is a brand that I've plucked from the fire. That's what the gospel is. So as Jesus then begins to minister powerfully in Galilee, we once again see his power over evil spirits. His fame begins to spread, and as soon as the people track down which house he went to, the word begins to get out, and they all begin to surround the door. After the word spread as to which house he was in, the whole city gathers to him, and interestingly enough, he does not tell them, go away. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by the demons. So our city is around, I think, 250,000 people. And the Miami Valley as a whole is, I believe, half a million to three-fourths of a million people. Now, the cities in those days were smaller. However, they weren't, it is a mistake of modernity, modernism, to assume that there were no great cities in the past. This was a city. It wasn't a little village. And this area, Capernaum, had a great number of people. And Mark says the entire city brought everyone who was sick. Now, even in our city, if we just took the people in the hospitals, not, in, not all who were sick, just the people in the hospitals, there would be thousands of people in this event. All who were sick or oppressed by demons. That's, that's a very much larger set of people. Now, I want you to picture there's this small, tiny house. Simon's not a businessman. He's a fisher. Simon and Andrew are fishers. They have a small home in which a woman was just delivered from the throes of a fever. The entire city comes and surrounds their door. The whole city was gathered together at the door. Mark's words demonstrate the dark spiritual condition that Israel was in at the time of Jesus' arrival. In the curses pronounced in Deuteronomy, God said that if you move away from my word, if you follow after idols, I will bring upon you all of the curses which are in the law. And so what Mark is doing is he's showing us Israel has run away from Yahweh. 
they have forsaken their God. They've been, they've been attracted to evil spirits, idols, greeds, sins, lusts, jealousies. They have been given over to evil, and this is the mark of God in his law, that the curse of sickness would come on the people in a great way. So that is why Jesus came. This account is, in my opinion, and I believe we'll see quite clearly, I think I have good grounds to say this, this account is a foil. What do I mean by a foil? I don't mean the aluminum foil. I mean, in, in literature, a foil is oftentimes done in a character, but sometimes it's done in a circumstance. So you have a hero, and that, that person might be um, King Arthur, and he's got swords and armor and a group of men. And then there might be another person who is his foil. It's, an, it's a reversal. So, for example, Don Quixote... If you've ever read that story, Don Quixote is a person who has delusions of grandeur and thinks he's this amazing warrior, but he's, he's not jousting other people, he's jousting windmills. He's, he's jousting against, uh, against phantoms. He's fighting nothing. And so you might consider King Arthur to be foiled by or to be um, in literature revealed as an opposite of Don Quixote. Um, this happens all of the time in great literature, great science, or great, great story. So I believe this passage is actually a great foil of two very similar accounts in the Old Testament. So I want you to just think, if you are a student of the scriptures, do you ever remember a time in which someone came to a house to be a visitor, and nightfall happens, and then the city is surrounded by the men of the city? So what Jesus is doing here in this account is he's presenting the nation of Israel as a people group that is full of iniquity. The account is very, very similar to two accounts from the Old Testament, which are the most evil accounts in the Old Testament. The first one is when the angels visit Lot in the city of Sodom, and the other is very like it when a Levite brings a concubine with him to the city of Gabeah, which is of the tribe of Benjamin. And don't feel bad if you don't know where we're going because these are pretty obscure passages if you haven't spent a lot of time in the Old Testament, but they're so clear and they're so... We know for a fact that Sodom and Gabeah are mirrors of each other. And this account, although it's very brief, is, I believe, quite clearly a mirror of those two accounts. In both of those accounts, in Sodom and Gabeah, after sundown, the entire city gathers at the door in order to rape the visitor of that town. Now, before we get off into the weeds here, I'm not insinuating the people of Capernaum are doing that. But there's a mirror here. In those accounts, the host attempts to appease the wicked men. Lot pretends to give his daughters away. He says he'll give his daughters to the men who are trying to beat down the door to rape the, the two angels. And in the other account, the Gabeon actually does give away the Levite's concubine. And the men of the city rape her all night, and she's left dead for the morning. That is what takes place in both of those accounts. After these things happen... Great judgment comes from God on those cities, Sodom and Gabeah. In the one hand, he rains down fire from heaven, and in the other, in Judges 20, God commands multiple times the people go up 
and they ask which tribe should go against the, the tribe of Benjamin. And at first, God uses Judah. Why? Because Judah's the kingly branch. He reigns. He executes judgment. And so God brings great judgments on these two cities for their great wickednesses. And that mirror is quite clear. Here in Capernaum, however, Christ reverses these two. He foils, he undoes what those two accounts were by bringing healing to all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Though gathered for a different reason, the men of Capernaum are in just as much spiritual need as the men of Sodom and the men of Gibeah. Why do we know this is the case? Because it says all the city brought all those who were sick and all who were oppressed by demons. This is no small number of people. Verse 34, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Mark is not embellishing the story. He's using words accurately to describe what took place. Verse 34 goes on to say, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Christ silences the evil spirits because he does not get glory from the enemy. He gets glory triumphing over the enemy. He doesn't need the enemy's speech. The reason I bring out this foil is because it's dramatically powerful to recognize what goes on. In those two accounts, Sodom and Gabea, the righteous people who come to to visit there, both the angels and the Levite, although the Levite is, is not, we don't know whether he is a very righteous Levite or an unrighteous Levite, but he has the placeholder of being a righteous person who comes to visit in a home and the cities around them overwhelm them with evil. That's the whole point of why I've brought up this imagery. It's because what Jesus does in revealing who he is is he's not swamped by the evil spirits. He, as Luke record, or excuse me, Matthew records this passage, it says, and he took, quoting Isaiah, and he took, he bore, he carried himself our sicknesses and our oppressions. In this account, if Jesus were not who he was, he would be overwhelmed by the need. Can you imagine what's going on here? An entire town is full of demons and they're coming to you. They're, and they're asking you to do something about their spiritual plight. If you've ever ministered deliverance to anyone, you know it is extremely draining. If you've ever visited the sick in a hospital or in a home, you know that it is an emotional tax. It takes resource, it takes spiritual power to minister to others, and Jesus ministers for the whole night for an entire town, and he's not overwhelmed by their need. Do you think Christ can deal with your issues? You bet he can. Mark's showing you he dealt with a whole town full of need. He is able to save to the utmost those who call upon him. The tragic thing, however, is that though the city of Capernaum saw his great miracles, they did not repent in accordance with the grace that they saw. To whom much is given, much will be required. Amen? And Jesus came and ministered to the entire town such that they were all aware of his power and his ability to save and deliver. And unfortunately, we see, and this is why I think this 
this connection is quite clear is because Jesus pronounces woe on Capernaum, and when he does so, he makes his own parallel to Sodom. So I don't think the literary parallel, which is quite clear, is my basis for that parallel. I think my basis is Jesus made that connection. Verse 23 of Matthew 11, and will you, Capernaum, the city he's in, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Jesus isn't speaking hyperbole here. He's saying that they had sufficient witness in order to produce a spiritual transformation, but they wouldn't come to him. They wanted his healing. They wanted his deliverance. They did not want him to be their God. They did not want Jesus Christ as their Lord. They merely want Jesus Christ as some sort of savior or deliverer of things that plague me. They didn't want to bend the knee. They didn't want to yield the heart. And that's why Jesus does this. Jesus says that if those great works would have been done in Sodom, it would have remained. What does that mean? They would have repented and not been worthy of being judged. That's what I believe Jesus is doing in this passage. Christ testifies that the people of Capernaum have sufficient grace that if the same was done in Sodom, it would have been spared. What's the point of this? The point is this, that God alone can open the eyes of the blind. That although we see Jesus Christ in the scriptures, or we hear facts about him, or we grow in our knowledge of who he is and what he did as presented in the Gospels, unless God opens up our eyes and transforms our heart, we cannot come to Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus does when he pronounces woe on Capernaum. He says, you had every opportunity, you wouldn't come to me. So, what Jesus is doing is he's revealing he can deliver from demons, he can heal sickness, but what is the most important miracle? It's the miracle of a transformed heart. Unless that happens, nothing is worth it. So, even if we see great signs, unless God grants us grace, we can never respond. When Jesus was telling a parable about Lazarus and the rich man, Lazarus and the rich man both die, and the rich man, then in the state of torment, he says to Abraham, he says, go tell Abraham to go back to my relatives and tell them to repent. And then Jesus, in telling this parable, says, I tell you, they have Moses, let them listen to Moses, for they will not repent even if someone should rise from the dead. That's the point is we can hear the fact, we can be convinced by the details of Christ's resurrection, but unless he transforms us, unless the Holy Spirit applies the fact of the gospel to an experience of new life, an experience of new birth, it is all for nothing. This ought to move us to fear and trembling because so many of us have adequate knowledge and yet there is no real proof in our lives or to ourselves that we could ever be convinced of to a degree that would dispel all doubt unless God reveals it to to us individually that we are bearing fruit after the new birth. That is what we have to ensure of And the New Testament warns us of that over and over again. That is why it's important to see what 
what Jesus is doing in Capernaum, he's not just going to stay in Capernaum. And this brings us to the next place. As all went to their place that night, Jesus, in great humility, and as a great example, out of extreme love for the Father and a desire to be in the Father's presence, went away by himself. That is why I said earlier, it is not enough to be delivered from evil. It is not enough to be healed from sickness. Unless you're transformed to wanting to be with God, then it is doubtful whether salvation has truly come. The gospel writers tell us that this was Christ's habit. In Luke 5, Luke 6, it it says that Jesus would often go away by himself to pray. That he, when making extremely important decisions or just throughout his day-to-day life, he leaves the city of men, he leaves the region in which men are seeking after him, and he goes to be alone. Not because he was an introvert. And that's, that's not Jesus' personality type. He's exhibiting the quality of what does a real Yahweh follower look like? Jesus being our, our pattern and the one whom we must imitate. Verse 35, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. I don't know about you, if I ministered all night, even if I was just praying for people at 30 seconds a time, over hundreds of times, I wouldn't be getting up very early. What is he doing? Is he just showing discipline over the body? No, that's not the point of what he does. Mark shows us that another aspect of Jesus' glory, far more subtle, far more able to be missed, is this, that Jesus didn't just triumph over evil powers, he triumphed over the world system, which is the love of the praise of man. That is what the world system is built on. While those evils were defeated in public, only this evil is shown to be defeated in private, for indeed it cannot be defeated in public. By definition, it has to be defeated in private. Verse 36, Simon and those who were with him searched for him. So he didn't leave a note saying, Simon, brothers, I'll be at the vineyard of whoever. Come and get me when it's time. He intended to go be by himself for as long as he wanted to be with God. Because why? He ministers out of the overflow of the grace of God operating in his life. That for Jesus Christ, even when given the task of revealing who the Father was, he did not divorce that task from who the Father is. And so Jesus then says in verse 37, Mark records in verse 37, they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Verse 38, he responds, let us go on to the next towns. Isn't this amazing? Everybody, Jesus, everybody wants you to set up a synagogue here. We're going to have it. It's going to be called Jesus Capernaum Healing School and everyone's going to come and you'll be great. They want you to be They want you to be their king in Capernaum. And he says, let's go on to the other towns, for that's why I came. He came to bring his word. He didn't come to receive the praises of men until after the crucifixion and resurrection. He did not come for that specific reason. His response is absolute folly to the rational mind. It makes no sense, even to seemingly Christian ambitions. Jesus, you're bearing fruit. Don't throw away that field. You're, you're gaining ground against the enemy's kingdom. You need to 
camp out here. You have to be faithful to what you've sown. His response, although, can't, although we can't emulate it at all times, his response shows that he has triumphed over the hook. What is the hook? The hook is that he reveals the temptation to rest upon the praises of men. He defeats Satan in the wilderness by saying, I'm going to obey God's word. And then he quotes scripture, defeating Satan. He then shows victory over evil spirits in the synagogue. He shows victory over sickness in Simon's mother's house. And then again, a re-summing up of everything that's taken place, he heals many sick and many oppressed in the city of Capernaum. And the way that he defeats his next temptation is he goes in private and he defeats the praises of men. At another time, Jesus resisted the people's attempt in John 6 to come and take him by force to make him king. In John 2, John records that after everyone was in the city of Jerusalem was coming to Jesus, it said that Jesus was not entrusting himself to other men, for he knew them all. He had knowledge what was in man and therefore did not rest upon the praises of men. Jesus does not merely have power over sickness and unclean spirits, but over every tactic. As Jesus is in the upper room in John 14, he says that the evil one is coming and he has nothing in me. There's nothing that, that Satan has which can entice the Lord Jesus Christ into falling into sin. He has nothing in me. Later on, as Jesus is departing, he said to his disciples, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Before the cross. Isn't that amazing? He's able to say that before the cross because he's defeated the temptation of sin. He hasn't just paid the penalty for sin on the cross. He defeated the powers by showing how you triumph, which is according to love for God and love for men love for your neighbor, out of love for God. Though his fame spread, Jesus' example of private prayer demonstrates his humility in the midst of ministering to this people. How does this fit into our theme of epiphany? Because up until now, we have not clearly seen, except for in his birth and the lowly position of the stable and who, his submission to his earthly parents through his young life, we have not clearly seen Christ's humility. Christ is not just great. Christ is not just powerful. Christ does not just have authority over evil spirits. Christ is also the most humble. And yet he has the most reason for boasting, being sinless and full of anointing of the spirit. Christ does not just have the word of God. He's able to bring it to bear, but he doesn't just rest upon public ministry as the validation of who he is. He goes to be with the Father and that is what I think is so important for us as a church, is a renewal of our enjoyment in the word and the presence of God. It is that we would recapture what I think Jesus is showing is it doesn't matter if there's a lot of fruit. It does matter on some level, but what matters much more is if there's reality with God. When Jesus told about the parable that comes at the last judgment, he says that I will say, many will come to me. They'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not, what? Cast out demons in your name. He says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. 
That's the core of the gospel transformation. It's not just like Simon's mother-in-law being delivered and then serving. It's being delivered and being radically loved by God to the place where you want to be with God more than resting on the praises of man. Woe to us if we should be accepted by all men. Jesus told his disciples, woe are you if all men speak well of you. If you do not have the reality, then all is lost. So by loving God first, Jesus transforms our priorities that we would likewise be a blessing to others. By loving God first, he transforms our affections. He transforms what we think is important with men, even what is a good example of Christian ministry. Because Christian ministry cannot ever get higher than the example of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and his mighty power over evil spirits. Oh, how we need a great revival of practical power that delivers from evil, that delivers from sickness. Lord, we thank you for the limited measure of victory that we have had up until now. And yet, Lord, we pray that you would not bless us with more victory until we get to the core here. Until this core becomes so vital in our experience and vital in our walk and in our testimony, in our life together as a people, that we would never let the main thing be anything other than the main thing. Father, we ask that you would revive us, not in just the knowledge of your word, but in our experience and our delight in it, that we would be able to fellowship with you by your spirit through your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us life transforming experiences in which we see your glory and are able to move to worship, to move to prayer, where we desire to have a life centered around being with you. We pray, Lord, that you would do this, and we know that it is only possible by your Holy Spirit and the transformation which he alone can bring in our hearts. We pray for these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.